previously on The Learning Geeks. Cohort learning doesn't work. It's never worked for me before. It's a terrible idea. Oh, but we've done it and it's really good. We can make it work. Really? I don't know if I believe you. Yes, here's a bunch of whole really good reasons why it'll work. Well, I might need to hear a little bit more of those before I really commit. And that's where we are today. So we're going to revisit the idea of cohort-based learning with Dr. Grace Chang on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Learning Geeks podcast. Grace, welcome. We're glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're, we're super glad you're here. Grace, I, I realized in... in um, in Googling you like a cyber stalker, uh, we, we do have a couple of things in common. First off, you used to work at Anderson Consulting. Yes. My first job out of college was at Anderson. That that definitely dates me <laughs> before the Accenture day. It was my <laughs> first job for, out of college too. Yeah, so. mine too. When, when, were, when were you there, Grace? Are you willing to say? Yeah, I, I was there 90, late 90s, basically, right before, uh, right before okay. everything. <laughs> so. Wow. Did did you go through like the Accent on Client Server program? Did you go to St. Charles? And... I did go to St. Charles. Okay. Great cohort learning, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's where the three of us all met was in St. Charles. Yes. So, yep. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yep. yeah. It, it's such a interesting, you know, program that whole, it is. you know, yeah. sequester people in St. Charles for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh, it was. So. Yeah. We, we could do hours of shows about St. Charles and, you know, my experience in, in oh computers my gosh. Or practice school. The other thing that we have a connection on Grace is UCLA. So really? I, I didn't go there, but I always wanted to. Um, <laughs> well, and, and, you know, in Chicago, they say UCLA is the university closest to the Lombard area. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but um, my wife did go there. My wife uh, got her master's in, um, in social work from UCLA and I can do an eight clap. So, Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So that's, so that's good. So yeah. do you guys know what the eight clap is? No, it, it's a cheer for UCLA. It, it, it's really kind of catchy. You, you clap eight times. So you go, you see, LA, UCLA, fight, fight, fight. Okay, Grace, welcome. Grace, welcome. <laughs> Let's talk about cohort-based learning. So, um, Grace, I, I I do want to ask you to to introduce yourself uh, a little bit more, like you'd be like to be introduced. Tell us about you, your background, you know what what you're doing now, and um, you know kind of the angle that you're coming at cohort-based learning, which is really the neuroscience of it. So I just spoiled it. <laughs> so my background is in cognitive neuroscience. That's what I went to UCLA for. got my doctorate there, uh, specializing in learning and memory. Um, and, you know, I thought I was going to do the whole professor route, thought about that for a while, did some teaching, um, taught for the Neuroleadership Institute for a while, uh, worked at a research uh, assessment research institute at UCLA. Um, so I have kind of an assessment background and a neuroscience background. Um, and then I got a great offer to join Regis a couple of years ago, which is where I met Mike Kester, your, your guest from the previous show. Uh, we worked closely together there. It was a fantastic experience, you know, coming from the academic environment into industry. Um, I worked there for a couple years, and now I'm at EY uh, working for the learning research and development team. Um, and what I do there is I'm basically the, the voice of neuroscience. So using the research that we know to guide the development of learning there, but also um, I lead an assessment practice there as well. So 
That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, you know, obviously me and Mike, we've had close ties for several years. And so, you know, when it came to the chance to get to talk to him about cohort learning, work with him, I advise Lead Belay, which um, is his company. Um, so we have lots of really interesting conversations. Uh, interesting to us. I'm not sure if it's interesting to other people about about cohort learning. So that's how I ended up here. <laughs> Mike promised us that uh, you would correct anything incorrect that he said. So I don't I've know. I've got my ruler ready. You got your <laughs> I was yeah, actually sure. I was going to ask for your your report card on how Mike how well Mike performed in the Excellent. last not Excellent. not like listening to us right now or anything but yeah yeah uh, maybe maybe you could recap for us a little bit Grace about you know what did we learn on the last episode from Mike which I know you listened to that one as well yeah yeah I think I think he had a lot of great things to say about why so why cohort learning is effective um, and you know how to design good cohort learning. Right. Um, what are the things that go into it that we have to think about to make it a good experience? Because even though cohort learning has the capability of being great, as we all know, it can turn out terribly <laughs> if it's not well designed. Um, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. And I think, you know, a lot of it is testing and trying based on what we know we should be doing good practices, but then there is always some tweaking, which you could probably hear from what he talked about with what they do with Lee Belay. They've learned over experience and have improved over experience for um, their programs. So so if uh, cohort learning goes bad, is it cohort learning? <laughs> there we go. Sorry, I, I just, I haven't Start done it for a dad long time. Yeah. yeah, the first dad thing of the yeah, new year. Anyway. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am interested, Grace, in understanding because you, with your neuroscience background, what what is what are some of the neuroscientific implications of learning in a cohort or learning in a group? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when we think about why cohort learning could be effective and why, you know, everyone says it's engaging. Well, why is it engaging? Why is it effective? There's, you know, social, emotional, cognitive reasons just based on how we as humans function that, you know, cohort learning just kind of speaks to that, right? So at our root, we're all very social beings. We know that even within days of birth, we start to show preference for social engagement. You know, infants, I mean, those of you who have had kids, they, they feel emotionally rewarded by looking at faces when people are looking back at them. You know, they try to, you know, get your attention. And so social connections are just really important and cohort learning really capitalizes on that. We know that throughout evolution, having social connections was very important for survival. We had to pay attention to what others are doing and learn from them. I think there's plenty of examples of how, you know, tribal learning works, you know, learning from your elders. And if you didn't learn certain lessons, you know, about your, uh, your rivals and things like that, how to survive, you wouldn't survive. Right. So that's how important it is. And so that, that social aspect is so important to us. And that's one big component of cohort learning, but not the only component that makes it effective. No, Grace, with cohort learning, do you consider this a, does it have to be a formal based thing or can there be some informalities? I'd love to hear kind of your description of how you define cohort learning. I mean, we have it with Mike as well, but I'd love to hear from you just because if someone didn't listen to the previous episode, it'd be great to hear it again. Yeah, I think when, when we usually talk about it, we talk about it very formally, as in, you know, you have a cohort of people uh, that go a group that goes through something together. But I don't think it has to be that formal. I think that you get aspects of cohort learning, you could have that in a more informal environment, you know, 
even at work, you have a, a group you work with. Like I'm thinking back to even grad school, right? Um, you know, we were talking about Anderson Consulting and how we had <laughs> gone through St. Charles. There was a strong cohort there. Like even in grad school, you make your own little cohorts. I, I, I did uh, the neuroanatomy class with famous guy, Arnie Scheibel back in the day. It was a tough class, fascinating, but tough, you know, more than 50% of people fail, right? And this is this is one of the weeder classes your first year in grad school, um, if you're in the neuro at, at UCLA. And you very quickly find your cohort because you have to, you need mm -hmm. that study group to really survive because, yeah. you, you know, you're testing each other, working together. If someone missed an assignment, you know, like it's so important, but it's not a formal thing, right? You just find your cohort. And, and we, you know, I might not have survived had it not been for my cohort. I had a fantastic cohort and we all contributed to it. Right. So my daughter's going to graduate with her neuroscience degree in April. She's awesome. finishing things up. It's, it's not a master's, it's a bachelor's, but she's got a lot of the, you know, she, she's comes, uh, visits us and talks about some of the classes she's taking and how she needs help and support. So. Oh, yeah. It's so important. And it's so funny because so many of us going into grad school are such individual people, right? We, we're like individual. You know, we're used to, to, to doing well on our own, but you quickly learn that you can't, <laughs> that you need mm -hmm. that cohort. And that's an example of informal cohorts that, you know, they didn't tell us to do this, but you just very quickly realize that that's, that's more effective than learning on your own. So. I've shared this on previous podcasts, but uh, but my daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, Colin, he's studying accountancy. He's working on his master's of accountancy. And so she's working on a neuroscience degree. They get together, they go to the library, they find a whiteboard and they explain concepts to each other, right? So Rebecca has to explain neuroscience concepts in a way that an accountant would understand <laughs> or an auditor. <laughs> and he has to turn around and you know, explain assets, liabilities, and all of those types of things in a way that a neuroscience would. So, I mean, to me, that's an interesting micro cohort. It is. Yeah. It yeah. is. And it, and it also speaks to something that's really important that we do in cohort learning. Um, we do mentalizing. So we essentially are thinking about what other people know and don't know. And especially when you're kind of teaching someone else or guiding someone else, which happens a lot in cohort learning, it's very different from, you know, you individually looking at a book and trying to memorize something on your own. When you're in a cohort, you're discussing, you're, you're asking questions, you're sharing your knowledge, right? And so one of the things we do is we mentalize, which, you know, it activates certain parts of our brain. I'll throw out some neuroterms, dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, posterior cingulate cortex, temporal parietal junction, fun places like that. But basically it makes those places more active. And what we're doing is we're thinking about what we know, what they know, how to, you know, how to explain things to them in a way that they can understand, knowing that their beliefs and understanding is different from ours. And that in itself is separate from our normal learning processes that happen in our brain when we learn. So just that process of mentalizing seems to make our learning better. And that's exactly what she's doing. She's having to think through what her husband does and doesn't know. And, and also, also make it simple for that person and probably also storytell as well, which also is another aspect that happens in cohort learning that could really um, impact the learning experience. So do we know that improves the memory and the retention then? I mean, it seems logical that that's happened, but could, have we proven that? Yeah, yeah. So doing mentalizing, um, doing storytelling, there's definitely a lot of evidence with storytelling where, for example, if you had people memorize a list of words versus telling it through a story, having that extra context, it activates other parts of the brain 
other than just language areas, other than just the normal memorization areas. And it does actually improve memory over just you know, just studying something. I mean, you think about, especially with storytelling, you think about um, all the things that happen in storytelling, right? Like, I think any of us can probably remember Pose the Raven from high school, you know, someone gently rapping, rapping at the chamber door. It's very memorable for so many reasons. One, the emotional component, but also just the context around it. It makes it easier to remember. Right. So there's there's there is evidence that doing all those things, mentalizing storytelling is very good for learning. What's the role of humor in cohort learning? Well, first off, it has to be good humor, Dana. So <laughs> you oh, I'm out of here. Dad jokes don't apply. <laughs> Actually, they do. They're very no, they memorable. <laughs> well, humor helps. I mean, humor is known to make people pay more attention. Right. And we know that for learning to learn, to remember things, you have to have focused attention. So if you're paying more attention to something, then you're going to be more likely to learn it. So there's definitely been a link between humor as well. So not just in cohort learning, but in any kind of learning. Well, Dana, your, your really bad dad joke actually led me down a train of thought, you know, is it works. You said, <laughs> if cohort learning goes, goes wrong, is it cohort? You know, I, I'm curious as to, here's the way I would formulate the question is, is one of the risks of cohort learning that the, you know, the fear of failure, because you've kind of got that social exposure, is that increased and is that a risk? And how, how would you mitigate that? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, we know that we are, whether we realize it or not, we're very sensitive to people evaluating us constantly, right? We self-evaluate. We wonder what other people are thinking about us. And so that is a real risk in cohort learning. That's why I say that cohort learning can be fantastic, but design is so important. The interactions, the kinds of things that people are doing, how they interact is so important. There's a real need for building a safe space, that psychological safety so that people feel like they can share things and they're not going to be laughed at, right? If they, if they bring something up, because that having a, that kind of environment, that kind of threat environment actually will impede learning. Well, I want to go back to the term mentalizing again, because I, I think that this is a really good one to even deconstruct more, because I think it would be a really effective technique when you're, of course, in either any bit of social learning and cohort learning. Can you de just deconstruct that a bit of what it really means to mentalize either your thinking and, you know, with others, as well as I, I even want to get a little bit on possible the positives and maybe even some of the negatives um, on doing that as well. So I'd be curious if you can deconstruct that a bit. Yeah. So, I mean, basically when you're mentalizing, you're what you often don't realize you're doing this, but when we're. When we're, especially when we're, you can imagine when you're teaching someone something or when you're trying to persuade someone. Uh, think about um, political arguments. I think that's probably something that comes to mind because, you know, in the last few years, there's been so much political discord, right? And people trying to persuade people with facts and this and that, right? And actually what they found is that you're much more effective by storytelling, thinking about what people know and don't know, and then using some story around it rather than, you know, just hitting people over the head with facts. Same thing here. It's really about thinking about where people come from and what will, uh, you know, what they know, what, what appeals to them, that kind of thing, right? And how best to get your ideas across. Um, because... You may know something, you may have certain beliefs and attitudes, but you have to realize that other people have very different ones. 
And so that that that's essentially what's happening with mentalizing. So what's the relationship between mentalizing and schema or Roger Shank would call them scripts? The cognitive scripts that we have is, is there mm-hmm. a relationship between all those things? Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely um, you know a lot of these things are related terms. They have relations and overlaps, right? So when you're mentalizing, you are thinking about different schemes. You're thinking about your scheme of the world, their scheme of the world, that kind of thing. It's just another term of how we kind of do all that, right? So, so I want to bring up a topic that um, I, I, the learning industry is starting to pay more attention to. And uh, I don't know how much we know about neurodiversity in cohorts, but I'd be interested in hearing any insights you might have about, you know, when, when you have a cohort and you might have someone on the neurodiverse scale, uh, by some uh, analysis, as much as 20% of the population is neurodiverse. So, you know, it's very likely that in training classes, you'll have someone somewhere on the neurodiverse scale. So how do you, what are you thinking uh, about neurodiversity in cohorts? Yeah, it's a great question since obviously it is a reality that there are there are going to be neurodiverse people. Um, and I, I'll say there is not nearly enough research on this, especially in the context of cohorts. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things to think about with cohort learning with neurodiverse people or just in general is making sure that you the people who are in the in the cohorts all have an opportunity to reciprocate and collaborate and share right and they need there needs to be some equity there they need to be able to feel like they're not um because of their neurodiversity or some other reason you know at a disadvantage right that they're able to do that. And so that can mean different things depending on what exactly the neurodiversity is. I think it's obviously helpful if the person has some self-awareness about their own neurodiversity and then, you know, thinking about what would it take to make sure that they're equipped to be able to feel like they can collaborate and contribute as much as others, right? Um, so I don't think there's a one size fits all, but it is a conversation that has to be had and thought about. So in the last the last episode with Mike, we did talk about, you know, how do you what are some effective techniques to when we have individual that just is the loudest person in the room, um, someone that's quiet, you know, are there, from what we know from the science, is there anything specific and how do we manage that on a cohort basis? Um, given that there are so many variables every time you bring people together. Yeah. I don't think there's a, unfortunately there isn't a, a direct research study where they study this. Right. But yeah. I, would think, I would say from the research you know, he, Mike talked about having a facilitator of some sort who can help make sure, you know, that things are running smoothly. But I think the idea of having working agreements at the very beginning, really focusing on that beginning part, you know, building those relationships so people have relationships, but also have a clear, explicit understanding of what, how are we going to go through this class together? How are we going to interact together? Right. And then knowing that you're going to keep each other accountable when things go haywire. Right. I think making that really explicit is really important so that when things do go a little haywire and someone gets called out, it's not a surprise. It's something that you guys all talked about and agreed upon at the beginning. And so I think that from from a research perspective, that makes a lot of sense, because as humans, we like to have certainty. We like to have some rules, some clarity about how things will work. And and, you know, 
if we have that, then we can, you know, fix things later on. If you just call people out later on and you ha- didn't do that, then you can imagine that it can cause a threat response in people and, you know, all sorts of bad feelings and things. So, so that beginning part is incredibly important. Grace, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that because I think um, we haven't talked a lot about trust, but it seems like that aspect of forming the team at the beginning is really kind of laying the foundation for trust. So what is the role of trust in a successful cohort? Oh, I think it's very important. I think people need to feel that other people in the group are supportive of them, that they're not out to attack them, that that whole psychological safety that I talked about, and also that there's some transparency about how we're going to interact with each other. Um, it makes me think about, you know, when we have working groups, when we would do design sessions together, we would get a, at work, we would get a group of diverse people and we would have like a two day design working session. And one of the things we'd start out with is, you know, coming up with these working agreements. We talk about, well, how are we going to interact? How, you know, how are we going to make sure we share information? How are we going to do this? How are we going to be accountable? And just making sure we get agreement across. And, and, and it's not always immediate. Sometimes you have to talk through something, right? But you want that buy-in early on. And, and, when you do that, you do build more of a trusted relationship where you feel like um, you have clarity, but also you know that other people are going to be, you know, trustworthy in some way. We have some sort of accountability as a group. So. And you've mentioned the working agreements quite a few times now. Um, what does that look like in practice? Like what, 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 what does that do? Is it, we just talk about it or is it something that you really truly have an agreement that you're writing down? Yeah. I mean, it it can look different, but the way I've seen it done the most is, you know, you have a discussion, you suggest, well, you know, we're going to say that we have to let people, you know, one person talk at a time, you know, I'm just making this up. (laughs) One person gets to talk at a time before the other person. Um, That might be a working agreement. Um, Maybe we hear everyone out, you know, before we make a decision, you know, so there's certain things you talk through. And then we actually, we would do what is it called the fist of five, where you would have people vote, like, and, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how well, how, how comfortable are they with these working agreements? So I think five was, oh, I totally endorse this, you know, uh, four was, eh, I, I, you know, I'm pretty good with this. Three was like, I can live with it, (laughs) but, you know, and so you talk through that and sometimes you have to talk through things more and come up with something that everyone can agree upon. And it's a great way to also kind of break the ice to know that, you know, we can work through some challenges together, even from the beginning, talking about working agreements. So, and and so that way you, you co-develop and design how you're going to have the experience. And and real quick, um, how do you sustain it? So you do the working agreement, you do all the stuff up front. How do you sustain yeah. the trust? How do you sustain like if things change, you know, uh, those that can't see my my daughter, my youngest daughter just randomly shows up. There's things that happen during the day and during the weeks and, and during many <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. How do you she's sustain grown it? quite a bit since I've seen her last time, Jake? She is. Yeah, yeah she's grown yeah. a lot. <laughs> we should have brought her on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is where this is where having someone, if you do have an outside facilitator, that's helpful too, because they can almost be the person who reminds you of the mm. working agreements from time to time, right? And, and, 
Yeah. And there's no feeling of, there's no weird feeling about that because that's kind of their role. You've their set role, that up yeah. as part of their yeah. role to keep you guys honest. If, it, if you don't have a facilitator, then you have to agree as part of your working agreements that you will call each other out and you have to actually do it right equitably. You can't just call certain people out in certain circumstances. So um, there is a way to do it. And I've seen it done well. You, you mean like Bob and Jake shouldn't call me out every time I tell a dad joke? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Did you have a working agreement? <laughs> you know, we didn't. We didn't. Indirectly. <laughs> it's just a bit, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, it's growing at every joke we secretly, we secretly love them, but we, we just, do. it's a bit to, well, I, to I was about. I was visiting with my doctor the other day, and he told me I was going deaf, and I told him, well, that's hard to hear. <laughs> But um, oh my gosh! So, all right, Grace, I'll, I'll stop. Honestly, I'll stop. Um, you, you've given us a lot of really good practical tips, as Mike did last time, about how to design a cohort learning experience. Uh, are, are there others? So you, you did talk earlier about how important it was to design it well um, to mitigate some of those risks. A, a, any other tips to share? I think the other aspect is thinking about how you can make things rewarding, right? I mean, the thing about social interaction is it is rewarding, but it has to be, it has to follow certain things, right? So we talked about building the psychological safety. The other aspect is this feeling of belonging. And there are things that you can do to kind of increase that. You know, you get a group of people together, they're very different. They could be very different, right? And so I think Mike talked about the questions that uh, the 36 yeah. questions or whatever to, to build that trust, build that. It's not just building trust, but it's also trying to find some commonalities as well. So anytime you can find some commonalities, um, because there's so much research out there about how we respond differently to people if we think of them as you know, part of the in-group, one of us, or part of the out-group. And this is one of the reasons why having a huge group could be problematic, because you can imagine it's easier to divide into lots yeah. of different <laughs> groups on some and, yeah. uh, some dimension. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these, these in-groups, out-groups, they can be, you know, things, I mean, the basic things. We categorize ourselves so easily as humans, right? We naturally like to. I mean, it's not just about sex or age or things like that. Um, I went to Duke as an undergrad, so I am a dookie through and through. I am a blue devil. Um, and, yeah, and it may seem like a silly thing, but you know, you very quickly, you know, UNC, they were down the street from us, 15 minutes down the street, right. but very quickly you have this affiliation, right? And and you do respond differently to people in your affiliation than you do, you know, the outgroup sure. people. You feel more the reward parts of your brains actually do different things when you're interacting with in-group versus out-group. You're more likely to listen to in-group people than out-group people. You know, they have all sorts of studies on Schadenfreude and how, you know, you you, <laughs> you actually feel rewarded when the out-group fails. So there's all these things to think about in building that safe space and building that belonging kind of space, right? Mm -hmm. That community. Yeah. It's such a good thing that none of that in-group, out-group stuff happens in, you know, U.S. politics right now or anything like that. <laughs> so. Or corporate life. Or corporate. Yeah, or corporate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that those are, I mean, there are a million examples we can think from politics and corporate right? life yeah. of all those things gone wrong, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the clock on the wall too, but one topic I definitely want to get to before we close is around cohort learning and like the science behind being in person, hybrid, and and remote as well. So there's a lot of upfront discussion that we talked about what the importance of meeting with people, building trust. What's the science say behind the physical proximity, being close to individuals, not being close to individuals, being hybrid? What does that say around cohort learning? Yeah, I won't say that being 
in-person versus everyone being virtual is the exact same thing. But what I will say is that there is a lot of evidence that people can learn virtually very well. And it depends on what kind of learning we're talking about, right? There's, and it, A lot of times we throw learning solutions at something that isn't really a learning solution. What we really want people to do is get in a room and meet each other and stuff like that, network, which is a whole different thing from yeah. learning, right? But yep. you can learn virtually very effectively. Now, the issue comes with hybrid because the problem with hybrid, when you have some people in the room, some people out of the room, is it naturally, just like we were talking with the neurodiverse right. topic, it creates this inequity, right? Some people are going to have a harder time hearing, seeing, doing, interacting, right? Because they seem further away. And there are obviously some tips you can do. Like you can, for example, call on those people first because you want to, what you want to do is decrease that psychological and physical distance. So you can make sure you're prioritizing them, but it doesn't solve everything, right? There's, there's a lot of issues with having that hybrid from an equity standpoint. I think the other thing that stands out for me is the issue of cognitive load. You know, we can only hold so much information in our working memory, only hold so much information at a time and be effective and learn, right? And the problem is that when you have a hybrid situation going on, you've got some people in person, some people on the computer, you've got to look at different places. For the facilitator, that's crazy. Think about it. They have to be responsible for all these different people's experiences and trying to make it good for everyone, right? And th they're experiencing very different things, but they have to deal with that and try to make it equitable. And at the same time, as a participant, it's difficult because your attention is kind of pulled in different places. There's just so much more information and stuff going on. And it's extra stuff that we don't need to, that'll keep you from being able to be as effective and really learn as well. So ideally, you would have people all in person or all virtual. So if you need a hybrid environment, put the people who are in person on computer as well. I mean, it seems weird, but that way, at least everyone's experiencing something similar. And it's also easier to manage. So, so I am the guy who ignores the clock on the wall. I'm going to ask another question. Uh, are there any cohort learning myths that need to be busted? Hmm. I, I, that's a all good right. Question. I stumped the expert. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, tell me a couple of things that you've heard about cohort learning. I can tell you if it's a myth or not. <laughs> it's the solution to everything. Okay, I would say it's not the solution to everything, right? Um, there, there are times and places where it's probably more useful. I think, you know, Mike can probably talk a lot more to this. I think, especially if you're, like, with softer learning, I, softer learning, I hate that yeah. term, but I think that can be especially useful there. Um, it's really good for the kind of learning where you really want people to think deeply about something you really want people to discuss where you learn from example where you do that kind of thing but 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 you know you can also learn very effectively not using cohort learning like you know there's definitely some other methods of especially with technical learning where you don't have to have a cohort I, I do think that a cohort is great for many situations, though, but it has to be done well. And that's the problem is if it's not done well, which oftentimes it's it's really hard to get it to the right level. Right. That's the challenge. Um, so I don't know that it's a myth, but, yeah, it's it, it's not like any kind of cohort learning would be good. Cohort learning could be disastrous if it's not done well. So. <laughs> Here's a myth is nobody really likes it. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think um, I think it's always a little bit intimidating to people the idea of being a cohort, um, feeling. But but you know, there's actually, and I'm sure M Mike will tell you this. There's you know he's 
in his assessments, people can find it very rewarding. They can find it very engaging, energizing, motivating. You know, there's actually some evidence that social interaction, you know, in the research that social interaction can actually activate the reward areas of our brain and make people more motivated to learn and mot- and they have good emotions around interacting with people. You just have to make it a good experience for them for that to happen. All right. Well, now I am going to call the clock on the wall in because <laughs> we uh, we are at the end of the time. Grace, thank you so much for being with us. This was yeah, thanks, great. Grace. It was it was great thank to you very uh, much. piggyback the talk with you and Mike and learn a lot more about cohort learning. And like I said the last time, I'm ready to give it a try again. So, and where can anybody find find you or learn more from you? Uh, where would it be the best place, Grace? Uh Probably LinkedIn would be you could you know you could also reach out to me I'm you know at EY now but um, I'm always open to connection on LinkedIn and you know as long as you're not trying to sell me something <laughs> I have no buying power whatsoever <laughs> so. that should be on every I'm going to put that on my profile right I, I, yeah I agree. You know, Bob Gerard uh, learning evangelist co-host of Learning Geeks podcast I have no buying power. That <laughs> Yes. I, I feel like that should idea. be my tagline given, you know, the who reaches out to me. So. Yeah. It would reduce LinkedIn connection requests by like 90%. Yeah, yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks everybody for being here. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Dana. This has been Bob. Thanks to our listeners. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Learning Geeks podcast coming soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.